0: This episode is brought to you by Begin by Soho CRM. So let's face it, you don't have to use spreadsheets, notepads, reminders, and 10 other apps to manage your customer information like you may be doing today. Whether you're a startup, a small business, or a freelancer, did you know that you can manage your business as effectively as any large corporation? With the current market, it's more critical than ever to retain existing customers while also staying on top of your sales pipeline. And you can do this with your business today by saying no to spreadsheets. Big in supercharges your workflow and helps you engage prospects, manage pipelines, and close deals without skipping a single beat. It has a super simple drag and drop interface, which will have you up and running in under 30 minutes. All listeners of our podcast can get up to 15 days for free, the free trial, along with a 50% off and up to $100 when you sign up. Just go to Soho.to forward slash begin Pantera Advisor and get started. If you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Chris. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every sales situation, complete with highlights and notes, and it's asynchronous, I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even Syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to TryWingman.com to give it a try. That dot com. It's just the wingman your sales needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. Alrighty, Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder from India. I mean, incredible founders coming out of India. And, um, and we're going to be talking about building and scale. I mean, he's done it all. He's built, scaled, sold companies. I mean, you name it, everything in between. So I think that you're all going to find this very inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Srivatsa Prabhakar. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Great to be here and looking forward for our conversation. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. You know, how was life growing up there in India?
1: Oh, uh, it's been fantastic. Uh, I come from a very small village, 3,000 families. Of course, it's small for India, not really for the world. Uh, The family uh, where I grew up with, uh, we had a very small village. So actually came from the kind of mountains, I can say, and uh, studied and became an engineer. Uh, Obviously, those days... Uh, you either become an engineer or a or a doctor, uh, at least back in India. And that's how your career is secured. And I wanted to be a cricketer. Uh, I think uh, that was the initial choice. Obviously, parents thought that's not the right choice. Uh, considering today's world, I think the cricketers are the most rich people in our country. Probably now even more than the, the billiards and NBA and uh, soccer. Uh, I think uh, anyway, uh, past is past. So I grew up in India. I uh, did my engineering, did my master's, and started my career with a company called BPL, uh, which was uh, the country's largest uh, domestic home appliances and electronics manufacturer. Almost think of them like uh, a Samsung or an LG of India. But in your
0: case, in your case, I mean, why why engineering? I mean, obviously, I think that the, the, the cricket aspect of it is great because that gives you the competitiveness, the leadership, you know, uh, aspect. And I'm sure that that has served you well. Uh, I mean, look at you. You are a a pretty successful entrepreneur, but I'm sure that that was was a good influence in you. But why engineering? And also, why is there that pressure, that cultural pressure against, you know, you
1: needing to become a doctor or an engineer? No, I think uh, obviously, you know, in a country of 1.3 billion people, uh, from an opportunity standpoint, uh, let's take uh, different uh, opportunities, right? Cricket, at best 11 member team uh, amongst 1.3 billion people. So obviously the the chances of success are extremely limited. Of course, today you have domestic uh, cricket, you have leagues and a lot of opportunities, but that was not the case back in 1980, uh, sorry, 1990, when I was doing my uh, uh, schooling. 94 is when I uh, joined my engineering. So back then uh, it was not that big uh, from an opportunity standpoint. why engineering why doctor obviously it's it's kind of you know your your success is guaranteed because you are in a professional uh, you you are a professional you are going to join a good company uh, with your professional background so compared to any normal graduation engineering uh, obviously had uh, much better uh, opportunity and that was when you know india software boom just started right you had the companies like the infosys wipro's of the world which are today obviously uh, large software service providers globally and uh, they all started from india so obviously uh, if you're an engineer your chances of success are pretty high and that's what parents wanted you to do though like i said i wanted to be a cricketer but my father said hey you become an engineer or you don't do anything and you be with me my father was a lawyer he was a judge so he said you do law in fact i actually ended up doing even law i studied law but uh, didn't practice ever and I don't even know any law, any any uh, uh, anything about law today, uh, other than reading agreements.
0: So, so in your case, uh, basically, you you went into corporate, and you did travel quite a bit. So, uh, what did you learn during those corporate years?
1: Oh yeah, I think I was lucky uh, that I got a good company. But uh, believe me, uh, especially if you are an engineer and you don't code. Uh, Those days, 98, and uh, then you had the uh, dot-com boom, uh, and then obviously 2000 Y2K. Before that, if you're not a software engineer, but you're an engineer, you're again, amongst peers, you're not successful. So, I mean, I was thinking I was unlucky uh, to join a company where I was not coding, but actually fixing uh, televisions. And so I was almost like uh, a mechanic, right, Uh, compared to others who were actually building those products. So I think uh, that was, you know, really disappointing for a while. And at least I was thinking that way uh, with a very little, ima- uh, you know, it was immature thinking uh, if I have to look back today. But then what happened, Y2K and a lot of jobs, unfortunately, went away. And nothing happened to us, our, our industry, because obviously uh, I was not coding. So that was a good first-hand information saying, hey, you have to be with an industry which is kind of, you know, uh, recession-proof. And if you keep delivering value, obviously, there is always an option for you. And of course, uh, that helped me also because I was working for one of the largest companies back then in India. I had good opportunities. to spend about five years with them and then joined Samsung, then joined a carrier and last with Nokia. So obviously, uh, you know, it was how I started my career. but then moved into management and uh, part of executive leadership. So obviously, I had a good growth. Again, the space that I was in, uh, you know, there were only few people uh, who would take up an operationally intense, not so sexy, uh, thankless job of customer service. So obviously, I think that helped uh, me uh, climb the ladder. But also, uh, you know, that's what I do today. So if you ask me, uh, 20, 24 years of experience uh, doing what I love to do. And I think the only thing that I know to do, to be honest, uh, is what I run as a company. So it was a good career move. I traveled across the world. Luckily, I worked for some of the best companies out there. I mean, companies like Nokia, Samsung, uh, or, a, or a, a carrier like Tata's. So I had the opportunity to travel across the world. And in my first company, obviously, when I started my uh, entrepreneurship, uh, my first company, uh, I was actually working with the, a lot of the global companies, uh, helping them consult, uh, because they all thought, you know, when it comes to customer experience, uh, maybe they could take my help. And uh, I also had the opportunity to, you know, work with them across, you know, 100 plus geographies. And that gave me a very, very good understanding of how global markets operate. And I, I just cannot, uh, you know, acknowledge that how lucky I was uh, and the space that I'm in.
0: And that was that was, that was a pretty risky move on your end because, I mean, after all those years working with uh, large companies, like you said, like Nokia and Datas and so forth, I mean, jumping ship now and, and starting your own thing. I mean, it's, it's quite the leap of faith and I'm sure that your family was like, Hey, what what are you doing? What What's going on? So, so I guess how did the idea of, Hey, you know what? I'm going to give my notice and I'm going to go at it on my own. I mean, how did that happen? What was that process of going from incubation to all of a sudden, Hey, you know, now I got the idea and I make sense. Screw it. Let's do it. Kind of thing.
1: Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, uh, while uh, in between uh, my career, uh, very early, almost after three years of working for the first company, I actually wanted to start something on my own, but never had the courage. And uh, obviously, uh, it was a good job, paying well, and I was, you know, climbing up the ladder. So I continued to uh, work in the corporate sector. But 2009, when Nokia had actually 40% market share globally and about 72% in India, so it was one of the largest markets of nokia in india we used to sell about 5 million phones and i quit and i still remember my ceo telling me you are the biggest fool that i know in this world who lives the world's best company and you have the best job where you know you're you're like the leader here in the company and you have only opportunity to grow in this company and of course i quit uh, for a very personal reason i think uh, If I speak more, I'll be more emotional. So I don't know whether this is the right uh, audience here. 100%, go for it. My father was unwell uh, and he was my hero, obviously, right? So uh, back at home, he was unwell. He was hospitalized for a couple of months and I was actually sitting next to him and operating, working with my laptop, dongles connected, with my headset on. I was working all through uh, while I was next to him. And unfortunately, I lost him. So when I came back uh, from Uh, all the funeral and everything back to work because it was back in my village uh, to to, uh, my uh, office, which is in Gurgaon headquarters. Uh, Unfortunately, my immediate supervisor uh, met me the first day and he said, hey, you know, uh, you took a lot of vacation. I hope you're back in action now. And that hit me hard. Obviously, I wanted to be an entrepreneur all the time. I did everything in terms of even working for corporates that, you know, you would do as if it's your own company, right? You would do the right thing. You would take the chances. You would risk. You would do everything that you would do as if it's your own company. And here, when you're back immediately after the funeral, somebody tells you, I took vacation. So I said, uh, I'm done. Uh, this That was my trigger, uh, I would say, to start something on my own. Do you know anything about the risks? I said, let's face it. Opened my laptop. The first, very first email was the resignation letter, right? So obviously, uh, I had a three months notice, and my uh, you know big supervisors from Finland and everywhere else uh, didn't really want me to leave. And uh, they said, "Hey, this is uh, I mean, I mean it was it was not intentional that somebody wanted to hurt you." But I said, "Hey, you know probably this is my trigger. My dad wanted me to be successful, and I I think I'm going to be successful. I'm going to leave this. At least I'm not answerable." Uh, to certain things that I don't want. to, uh, While I respect everybody's views and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a cohesive world, but if somebody tells me that you shouldn't have taken a break to be with your dad on his last day, uh, I'm sorry, that's not the culture I fit. hundred percent. So that's how I started. Uh, luckily in those three months, uh, you know, uh, I did speak to a few people that I'd worked with before and uh, I had already almost four consulting arrangements that could take care of my salaries, right? Or, or my expenses. So I said, hey, this is wonderful. Uh, you know, why do I do this job? And that's how I started. Started with consulting, built uh, then service ecosystem for almost all the top companies. We started with Apple as my first Apple Care location, which was uh, non-existent in India. Uh, and then the rest is history. So that's how I became an entrepreneur. I would say I was an accidental entrepreneur. Uh, I didn't really plan the day, but it just happened. And I think that was a trigger.
0: I, I don't... I don't out of being pissed off. And that's incredible. I mean, obviously, I totally see that. You know, I mean, I I remember during my days too in corporate America where you got your employee ID, right? (laughs) You're like employee ID number, boom, boom, boom. It's like, come on. So, so I get that. So now going now to your story. So you end up, you know, saying, okay, you know, I'm going to go at it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to really build my own destiny, my own future and mm-hmm. you go at it and you start the service solutions. That was your business. Okay. And you did scale that up to $20 million in revenue. Now, really, really impressive, right? So first business, $20 million in revenue. You do a JV and then the business ends up being acquired. So can you walk us through what happened on that acquisition? You didn't raise any money for this, correct? No, it was completely bootstrapped. Completely okay, bootstrapped. So, so, so tell us about that JV. How did that JV happen and how did that transition
1: into an acquisition? Sure sure so i think you know we were simply building and i i also want to you know probably helpful for your audience you know until i started my first venture uh, i was obviously well qualified at least in 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 my own uh, eyes but running a company was way different right i mean that's when you realize cash flow that's when you realize funding that's when you realize uh, you know actually optimization right Because uh, when you work for large companies, you are allocated certain budgets or you are the one who are creating budgets, but you never worry about cash flow as long as you're delivering on budget. So, But when I started, uh, I had the first month and obviously four customers, or at least started with one, a very good contract and did the billing, but didn't realize that there were 45 days of payment cycle. So you complete the first month and then you invoice within seven days, and then you have a 45-day cycle. So for three months, hey, this is cash flow. Uh from, from there to learning a lot and didn't know anything about startups. And in fact, you know, since I I like I said, I come from a very small village. We were always taught certain values uh, that you shouldn't take money from anyone, right? So I, I wasn't sure uh how do I Really run the company uh, if I have to take money from somebody and they they dictate the terms, right? So do you know anything about, so when people even startup uh, angel funds or some family offices, they came looking at, hey, you seem to be doing something good. So do you want money? I said, no, 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 I have enough money. <laughs> and I know internally that, hey, this is a month, I don't think we'll be able to pay salary on time. What do I do? Should I mortgage my home? Should I mortgage my wife's jewelry? And we did, ended up, doing all of that just to ensure we pay taxes on time, salaries on time. I didn't take salary probably for like three years when we started wow. first, except for my you know basic expenses. And luckily my wife was working. So a lot of these things were first time. And uh, obviously we never thought we will sell. I, I was so passionate and I'm still, but you know, when it comes to exit, there was, nobody was pushing me for an exit, right? I'm like building a great company from a, a hundred thousand dollars a year to a couple of million dollars to a twenty million dollars in five years was a great journey, and with absolutely no external funding, hundred percent ownership, and everything was going well. And uh, then I meet somebody who's just like me, at least you know, in my own uh, 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 kind of uh, scale of people that I want to work with, and that is Mr. Barkawi, fantastic human being. He's my partner even today in the new company in not not new any longer, uh, Savify. Uh, So I met him and he says, Hey, you know, we are doing exactly the same. I'm in Germany, you're in India and Middle East, but you're doing exactly the same. So we should come together and everything goes well. He's, he's, he's a serial entrepreneur again, himself, seven companies, seven or eight companies. He built everything from scratch. Obviously he brought his own management to run because that became large, you know, half a billion dollar portfolio for him at that time. I mean, half a billion dollars of revenue portfolio and in terms of value could be much bigger. And he said, hey, one of my companies called B2X is exactly in the state that you are, and we should come together. And he said, hey, I want to buy you out. I said, hey, there is nothing called buying out, right? I want I can be partner, but this is my company. How can you say that you want to buy this? So, of course, I would call it today, maturity. Do you know anything, right? So, uh, then we end up coming together. And he said, hey, but at the same time, if we as a global company want to operate, uh, we need to acquire 51% of your company and 49 is with you. And we will run the company, but you will, in in all operational matters, you will run. But in terms of the operational control in paper, it will be us. Uh Obviously, he was not actively involved. He had his management team. And I think, you know, once a founder is always a founder, right? I think you know it better than anybody else. Oh, yeah. Uh, after about six, eight months, I think uh, we didn't really get aligned, uh, to be honest, in terms of how we should run the business. And The idea of Servify was actually pitched to the global board saying, hey, this is what is the next phase of growth for this company if you're coming together. And that idea was shut down. And I said, hey, Karim, look, your board and your operating team really do not align with my thoughts. And I think I I still want to be a a founder. And uh, there's choice one, I take back everything that I gave. Choice two, uh, you take everything I have and I start something new and you come and join me. Uh, uh that's the only choice we have so while we tried being together uh, but i think we both agreed that hey it's always good to start something new and he said i'll back you up whenever you want to be and that's how we kind of separated i sold my 100 percent because that company wanted to have full control and it was yeah. their substitute here then and all of that and you know you had brands like apple samsung xiaomi oneplus all the large companies and they didn't want to let that go because they had already made global announcements that we are now partnered with Apple and all of all of that. While they didn't have those customers before acquisition, so I think it it was a win win. Uh, I made a lot ton of money uh, for my own greed, so to say, right? Uh, I mean, it was $2 dollars, <laughs> right? So
0: well, hey, you know, like you you go from like uh, trying to put as collateral the jewelry of your wife and you know everything that you guys have to now all of a sudden like this millions in the bank you know yeah. I, i'm sure that that was quite a good feeling
1: yeah, yeah absolutely and and you know uh, the core team uh, that came with me when i started and uh, obviously we were extremely kind of tight in terms of the way we ran the business and we were actively involved in everything we do and the team was very clear look guys the day we make profits we'll share profits but you'll not get Probably a massive salary. You're coming from a big company, but you'll have to work for me at thirty percent of your current salary. Are you okay? But I'll give you part of the company, right? And uh, actually, I think you know everybody made money in the exit. Uh, While I had hundred percent of the shares in paper before the acquisition, we made sure we did all those share transfers to ensure everybody gets their share. And I think everybody became millionaires, right? So it was a good uh, feeling, good outcome for all of us, and uh, it was it was. It gave a lot of experience. Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. As a
0: founder, you need to always be in problem-solving mode and really being faced with challenging situations, whether it's with life or with the business itself. You need to find a way to find the, the better solution, the solutions that are going to help you to really overcome that roadblock. And a therapist, a therapist like, for example, the ones that BetterHelp matches you with could be a good option for you. And I mean, I remember, for example, for myself with relationships, with experiences, I've used therapy in the past and it really helped with the loading, depression, anxiety. So BetterHelp is a really good solution. You could try it because it's convenient, it's accessible, it's affordable, and it's entirely online where you can get matched with a therapist that could be the right fit for you. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash dealmakers today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash dealmakers. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid-cap type of cycle. So, Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at Alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then obviously, here you are. You have the idea of Servify. It was shut down. Obviously, that that allows you to get to this transaction and get a nice exit for everyone. And what happened next? What happened?
1: Then I started Servify. Obviously, I had one year of uh, non-compete. So obviously, that's why I ended up doing some random stuff, uh, but also was planning Servify and started Servify uh, with the promise uh, to also have Karim, uh, who was the first acquirer, as an angel investor. So he came in with a small check. Uh, Obviously, that shows the commitment and friendship. And of course, I, I had enough money, uh, not to really take any external money to build until we have market fit and all of that. So we tried some experiments. We wanted to build the Uber for everything electronics. And I think everybody was building Ubers then. But I was still not really saying Uber is the right way to do for our business, because why will you as a consumer have our app when you don't need? And we are, we are not an engagement business. We are a, a need business. Whenever you need, probably that's when you want to interact with us. And that also may happen without an app. Why should you therefore? So the whole world was build, building this Uber for the space. I think we quietly ended up building the enterprise model. We said, hey, if I'm an Apple customer, I want Apple to fix it. Just that make the process simple. So can we build a whole gateway of integrating everybody together, build a platform that connects the whole ecosystem and also therefore uh, uh, look at after-sales service customer experience as a profit center rather than a you know typical cost center mindset that I have one year of, Uh, you know, obligation to, hey, that customer uses my product for five years. I need to be there for him and therefore I can make money when he needs me. And especially as products are becoming personal and smart and delicate, that opportunity just goes up. And that was how we built this business. And uh, yeah, so we did our first round after about five months of starting the company. Uh, One of the, uh, I mean, one of the, you know, seed investors who had also looked at investing in us in my previous avatar, Uh, I met him in a coffee shop and he said, hey, uh, now you can't say no to me. You should take money. And fabulous guy. uh, I mean, because I was also a a single founder, I told him uh, I'll take money on one condition. You're like my virtual co-founder, right? So whenever I need you, you'll support me. And obviously he's very well-respected, Bloom Ventures, Karthik, uh, great guy. So he put in his first check. And uh, obviously thereafter, until the last round, uh, wherever I could invest, I also came in along with the investors in all the rounds uh, because I had some liquidity. And I think that's yeah. how we built the business, which uh, I'm very proud to be where, where we are. So that's our journey. And,
0: and also for the people that are that are listening to really get it, what ended up being
1: the business model of Servify? How do you guys make money? Sure. So I think I'll give a little background on the opportunity, right? So think of it, I'll just take one category, that's smartphone four and a half billion smartphones in the world, about a billion smartphones sold every year. That's the opportunity. Now, people don't just use the phone for one year. They use it for long, number one. Data point number two, if you break your screen, it's not covered in the manufacturer's obligation. And close to 80% of the people break their screen today. That's the data available at least once in their usage of average two and a half years. So why don't you get into that space of charging a small subscription fee, and if it ever breaks, either replace it or repair it with no hassles, and life goes on. So you enable continuity, and the way we wanted to do this, it's a risk business, because a lot of the insurers had participated in this, so it's actually a phone insurance people are selling. I'm just talking about one category. Uh, Now think of it for all other products that you have, whether it is your laptop, TV, Uh, uh, iPads and watches and everything, uh, including today electric vehicles and all of them, right? So anything that's personal for us is a focus area, any product category. And that opportunity was completely left out by the OEMs, except for an Apple. Apple built an Apple care business, but no other OEM built a sizable care business. And they were all hardware manufacturers. So we said, hey, why don't you... Give us that opportunity. We'll build it, we'll white label it for you. So, we run today Apple Care in India, uh, Samsung Care, uh, OnePlus Care, Xiaomi Care, multiple brands, over 70 OEMs. And we run this over 40 countries for all these brands. And so that's how we started. So, in terms of, uh, in simple terms, if you ask me uh, what we do, uh, we are the engine behind some of these protection programs the r- brands offer in their name. So we underwrite the risk through our risk underwriting partners. We aggregate insurers. It's our platform where the product is sold or the services are sold through all the point of sale where the device is sold. So it's an attached product. And if you ever have a claim, it's our third-party administration platform that actually manages the whole approval, adjudication, connecting to nearest service centers, getting it picked up using integrated logistics services, collecting deductibles, making decisions, giving you that Seamless digital experience or enabling an advanced exchange so you are never off a of product uh, when, when it is under service. So, all of that is what we manage. And that's the company headquartered in Mumbai, now present in about 40 odd countries. So, that's what we do. And how much capital have you guys raised today? Yeah, so including the last round, uh, which is just announced about, I think, six weeks ago or eight weeks ago, we've raised about $100 million. Uh, and of course, uh, in the business so far, less than half of it is gone. So, which means, uh, I think we are we are running a very tight uh, ship. Again, we'll turn profitable in about another month or so. Hopefully, November—that's uh, the next month or next uh, next to next month. Uh, in terms of our scale today, we're at 150 million dollars uh, uh, annual revenue. So, this year we should do about 150 million dollars, and uh, we'll be profitable in another couple of months, like I said. And it's a business that. Because we took the enterprise route, so long contracts with the l- large brands. Of course, the sales cycle is longer, but the moment you're in, then you have a long sustaining period and you have visibility of your revenues. So I think uh, that's where we are. So hope to be a billion-dollar company in another three and a half to four years.
0: I mean, you you went from doing a bootstrap company now to raising over $100 million. I mean, yeah. what what's the difference between one or the other? And why did you choose a different route
1: this time about? No, I think uh, you know you learn from your mistakes. You learn. So I would I would say not mistakes actually. Uh, the bootstrap venture was good, but it I couldn't scale it. Right? I mean, the ambition was to scale it in five years from India. We just moved to the Middle East, and obviously it, it was a, it was right back then. And if you're really building a global company, and I think I had experience, I had uh, money to take uh, a risk uh, because it was my money too. So I I thought if I'm putting in my money. Obviously, I'll be more responsible for those who put money along with me. And I think the principle that I use always when I co-invested with the venture capital is I'm saying, hey, you know, your AUM is a billion dollar. And let's say you're putting hundred million dollars and that's 10% of your AUM. I'm putting in a million dollar and I have 10 million dollars. So I'm almost equal in terms of the allocation. So that's, 10% of my portfolio, so I'm big, betting big. So it's it's big money for me. For you, it might not be as big, but for me, it's big money. So I'm I'm investing, and it's it's you know I'm super responsible for making you successful. So I think uh, so. Second is for growth, obviously you need capital, and since the the venture that we do currently, uh, especially the enterprise uh, approach that we took, if I have to just you know sustain a long sales cycle, in our case it also is because of new markets when we enter we need to get all the licenses like the broking license the insurance intermediary license or the administration license it takes about 6 to 8 months and also have to integrate the whole ecosystem means i have to be my first dollar of revenue when i start a new subsidiary is after 12 to 14 months so i need capital to be available in terms of uh, making money so obviously uh, we had to raise uh, growth capital and I think uh, that was the only way to build this business. So uh, learned a lot in the first venture, not raising capital, but also uh, uh, how to raise capital now because I, I'm putting my own money. So I think it worked or at least is working in our, uh, in our favor. And I think it's a learning every day, right? So I think uh, what we're doing is really building a company that will make money or is already making money, sizable, global, and uh, very, very clearly, At a unit economics level, you can never make losses. I mean, strong fundamentals in terms of if I buy something for 100, I can't sell it for 90 and say that, hey, that's marketing expense. So, sorry, at least not me, right? So, I think uh, that's the learning that I come from with my first venture. Hey, we don't have, you know, money to throw. Every penny needs to count, but also uh, make a a very large global business and uh, be frugal in the way you build, but build it right.
0: And how many employees do you guys have now? So
1: we have about 700 people now. I mean,
0: that's a lot of people. So how do you guys go about
1: culture so that everyone is aligned? Yeah, I think uh, that's something that I take personally. I'm actually involved with everybody. Uh, I think I can probably name 650 people in the company and know them personally in terms of my approach. I think that's where I spend a lot of time. Uh, So I think also COVID helped so while our revenues from 3 million to 9 million to 86 million to today 150 million uh, we couldn't have done uh, due to two things during covid a lot of digital transformation happened but also we made sure that we took care of our people uh, as we were growing uh, by also not just not you know throwing them out because there were no business uh, we took care of all of them they supported us also in that journey we were running out of cash and they said hey you know even if we don't have cash we are okay to work But what really helped is the constant engagement. Almost every 15 days, I used to talk to the whole company. We used to run our, uh, even today, we do at least once in six weeks, we have a a town hall where I address the whole company. And uh, then we have events like the offsites. And uh, even during COVID, we made sure that we are constantly in touch. They're reassured. And I think personally for me too, today, money is no more a motive to run the business. As long as we build a global company, Uh, even, you know, we, I mean, I shouldn't be saying this in a public forum, uh, but 10% of mediocrity is okay for me. I need meritocracy, but if 10% of our company is not smart, I'm still okay because we're still fulfilling one objective that's employment. So I think uh, for me, that's the big picture. uh, As long as we're able to add value, either in the form of to shareholder benefit, but also to the stakeholder benefit, which is the larger ecosystem at play, I think uh, we are okay. So generally, we are a company, uh, I mean, people have even made jokes saying, why the hell is your attrition less than 10% while everybody is moving in tech world? Uh, We are saying we have both good and not so great people, but I think they are great individuals if they are not good at what they do. But, you know, as long as they meet the objective, that's okay. We don't need always outstanding people uh, because that's also a responsibility you have. And in terms of bottom, bottom line, I don't know, you know, I'm a strong believer uh, whenever there is crisis the first thing people do is you know sending people home believe me that's not going to add or move the needle that's not going to move the needle for sure in our case our operating cost is going to be less than 10 percent of our business so Mm. even if i you know ask 50 percent of my people to go home i'm going to say only five percent let me stop doing all the nonsense otherwise rather than telling people go home right so i think we are we are Okay, in that I think it's, again, you know, we come from a background where uh, we give highest regard to people and everything else afterwards. And I think that's also helped in terms of our relationships with large clients. I think today uh, we've not lost a single customer in the last six years. And I think that's also because of our approach to people in general uh, as a philosophy in the company.
0: Now, imagine if you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Servify is fully realized. What does that world look like?
1: That's a world probably 20, 20 years from now. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think, believe me, two, two three uh, pointers. Uh, one, I think, you know, I spent all my life in the after sales service, in the customer experience side. I think there is huge opportunity, tremendous opportunity. I mean, I'll give you probably next one day, 24 hours, and I'll give you five companies. Find the chief service officer of that company. That position doesn't exist. It's only a few companies that really do good for consumers. Otherwise, it's a presentation topic. Hey, great customer experience. We are doing this for consumers. Believe me, it's only till the product is sold. So there was, in fact, uh, I mean, until about three, four years ago, we used to have this tagline in our office that said, uh, who's the, con? I mean, definition of a consumer, right? The customer. Who's the customer? The one who buys your product. We used to say The customer is also the one who bought your product because most companies tend to forget that customer once the product is sold. And I think in our belief, like Apple does, like an Amazon does, right? They're obsessed with consumer experience. And it's not just when you sell the product, but also after you sell the product. And that's where we believe our business is recession-proof. A lot of companies are yet to, you know, go through that journey. And I think we have a number of companies to partner yet with and go through that transformation. So... I think realizing my dream is probably 80% of the large influencing brands that really genuinely do good for the consumer's post here.
0: Now, imagine I was to put you into a time machine mm-hmm. and I bring you back in time, perhaps to that moment where you had, you know, obviously lost your father, you opened your computer, here's this company, you know, sending you nonsense about taking time off, you know, during that difficult time. And. And then you're pissed, you're pissed and you realize, hey, you know what? I'm going to start something on my own. And imagine you had the opportunity now of sitting down with that younger self and giving that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why given what you know now?
1: You know, emotional decisions obviously uh, are not going to guarantee you success all the time, but I think in my case it did work in my favor. Uh so I would actually say that uh, you know while you take those decisions, uh, be true to yourself, I think you need to be very clear what you want to achieve. A lot of the startups, uh, unfortunately, uh, all, around of, uh, all around us, uh, their, their objectives are very, very different, right? I mean, few people want to build companies to get big valuation, get famous. Uh, I think the objectives are absolutely, uh, uh, I would say, misaligned. So... If you're genuine, if you believe you have the confidence, I think you should be successful. So if you put me back in the box and say, hey, this is where you are now, how will you do it differently? I would just do it again the same way. Because I was honest to to the T. I I knew exactly what I wanted to do in terms of, I said, I'm willing to sacrifice my, you know, every, every single Uh, uh, happiness uh, to be successful 24 hours a day I will work. I will do everything honest. In fact, uh, I'll I'll just give you one instance. When this German company did the acquisition, I think, uh, you know, obviously Germans being Germans, they were too scared thinking of an Indian startup, small company, bootstrapped. I'm sure there'll be tax dues open. There are a lot of process gaps they couldn't find a single major or critical observation. And they had the big four doing all the audit, financial due diligence, the tax due diligence, the legal due diligence, the tech due, due diligence. I think that's because that's how I am. And the, I mean, if I'm running my company, why will I do anything that's not right? So I think uh, certain fundamentals, uh, I think that's how you are You're brought up. So if you are true to yourself, uh, you have a clear vision and an objective you may not be successful the way you expect it to be but you'll still be successful i think that's my belief and there is a lot of opportunity out there right i mean there are hundreds of opportunities you don't probably scale to the level that you dream of but you can still be successful so if you ask me i'll do it all over i will probably do it little differently looking at probably, you know, a a global scale in mind and therefore build it right the first time. So I think uh, without knowing anything, the passion, we ended up building a platform. We ended up rewriting the platform probably three times because we wanted to go outside India. And I think some of those inefficiencies, but now experience uh, with experience, I think uh, all of that is sorted. But definitely I, I I would, you know, really focus on clarity, vision, honesty, and do it with all your heart don't do for the wrong objectives
0: i love it for the people that are listening what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi
1: they can email me on my email id it's sp at servify.tech i will send it to you Uh, you have it uh, already uh, alejandro but uh, it's sp s -S for sugar p for parrot at servify.tech would love to uh, talk to people
0: Amazing. Well, hey, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us.
1: Thank you so much, Alejandro. And it's been great to know you. It's great to talk to you. And uh, I look forward to our continued engagement. Thank you so much.
0: If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember,